I think it's really important that we all develop the skill of not taking ourselves too seriously. Take our work seriously, take our faith seriously, uh, take people around us seriously, but don't take ourselves too seriously. And in my life, God has brought people into my life who have helped me with that. And I had a friend that I worked with for 10 years when I was on staff at a church in Phoenix. His name was Rob. And Rob invariably seemed like his goal was to help all of us not take ourselves so seriously. Rob would come in your office and he would go, hey, so I have this idea. And that idea often meant that you put yourself in a position to not be taken so seriously. And, and Rob, he had these crazy ideas and I tried to resist them. You know, I resisted them longer than most people did. My friend Matt, not so much. Matt was going to preach a sermon on spiritual warfare and on the armor of God. And so Rob went to Matt. He goes, man, I have this idea. He goes, we should tase you as part of your sermon. And, and Matt said, yes. He said, yes. And so we, I knew somebody who happened to have a taser and uh, long story. And so we got that guy to come in and shoot Matt with the taser. We videotaped it. It was awesome, especially because I wasn't the one getting tased. And so I was able to stand against Rob's crazy ideas for, for years, but eventually he wore me down. And so uh, about five years ago, I was going to preach a series of sermons about men and women in the Old Testament who were incredibly courageous, who who just in the face of incredible fear lived with courage, and we were going to call it The Warrior. And so American Ninja Warrior had just come on the scene. It was the most popular show on national television. And so Rob comes up and he goes, hey, I have this idea. He goes, we should take you through Ninja Warrior training. And I was like, well, it's better than getting shot with a taser. And so I said yes, and we made this little video that I found this week. So uh, check this out. This is Scott becoming a ninja. So uh, yeah, I, I, they, they caught the one shot of me in an hour that I actually did what I was supposed to do. And it's harder than it looks. And now that I know somebody who actually has become an American Ninja Warrior contestant, our very own Dr. John Bundy, uh, I have even more respect for my friend John. Uh, but, but one of the things I learned from that experience is something I think that we can all take away. Whether you decide you want to be a Ninja Warrior or not, you are, are like me in the sense that you probably have some fear in your life some fear that is, is standing in the way, some fear that you need to overcome. And what I learned that day when I was training to become a ninja warrior was that my fear was my greatest obstacle. And, and when I was doing these crazy stunts, what happened was my fear would tell me, hey, don't go for it all out. Because if you do, you might not make it. And so again and again, I, I would go for it, one of these you know, things that they do on the show, and I would hold back a little bit. And when I held back, it inevitably guaranteed that I would not make it. See, the lesson that you have to learn with your fear is a half-hearted effort will always fail. And even if you're wholehearted, you might fail. But if you're half-hearted, you always will. If you're wholehearted, you just might succeed. And today, that's similar and a great segue into our big idea as we consider the next week in our series on James. Here's our big idea today. Following Jesus requires wholehearted commitment, not half-hearted allegiance. If you're going to follow Jesus, he's going to invite you to follow him, not like I did a lot of those activities, half-hearted and holding back in fear, but wholehearted and all in. 
And this summer, we've been going through the book of James, learning practical wisdom for the adventures that we're in. And so today, we're going to start James chapter 4, the next section in the book of James. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it on or turn there. It's near the back of your Bible. It's, it's nestled between Hebrews and 1 Peter. It's, it's a longer chunk in the book, and so we're not going to read it in one fell swoop today. We're going to read it piece by piece as we go through it. And as you're turning there, I, I want to uh, give a shout out to my wife if she is watching this service. Today is our 12th wedding anniversary, and so uh, she... Uh, she let me come and do my job today and, uh, and preach to you, but we had a great dinner last night in Sedona, and um, uh, everybody, we're all living through an incredible year, and it has been an incredible year in our marriage in great ways and in hard ways, and I've never been more thankful for her. So I love you, babe, and thanks for uh, taking care of the kids this morning so I'd come do this. This morning, as we dive into James 4, I'm going to share with you three warnings to those in the middle of a spiritual war. Because what James is going to tell us today is that we are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual war, and James is going to give us warnings about how we can succeed, how we can find victory in the middle of that war. So if your Bible's open, draw your eyes to verse 1 of James 4, where he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? The first warning that James has for us, those of us who are in a spiritual war, is this, that pride and pleasure lead to internal conflict and external pain. Pride and pleasure lead to internal conflict an external pain. What James does in this text is he draws a very strong, distinct, clear line between what's happening inside of us and what's happening all around us. In James 4.1, here's what he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Those are that, that external stuff. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you is not the external conflict and the external pain you see a result of the internal conflict within you. This word passions here is translated desires in other translations of the Bible other than the ESV that I'm reading from here. And it comes from the Greek word that is the same source for our word hedonism. Hedonism, the, the unrestrained pursuit and enjoyment of passion and pleasure and desire. And what James says is, hey, are you experiencing conflict in your life? Are you experiencing things at odds with other people? Is that not because you are pursuing your desires and your passions in an unrestrained way, and what is inside of you is bubbling up and coming outside of you? James, in this first five verses, he, he lists a litany of things 
in different translations that, that reflect what goes on in our heart. He talks about murder and backbiting and envy and slander and coveting and fear. He talks about disunity and anger and lust. He talks about quarrels. He, he spells it correctly. We did not. But he talks about all of these things that are happening within us. And what he says is this, essentially, that a war within us leads to us being at war with others. And so instead of looking around and going, is it your fault? Is it your fault? Is it your fault? Is it your fault? He says, look in the mirror. The pride and the pleasure that is driving your behavior is leading you into internal conflict and external pain. And the world will never be at peace until we find peace within us. The solution isn't beginning out there. The solution begins in here. And he continues talking about prayer. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So not only are these passions causing you to be at conflict within yourself and conflict with one another, but these passions that are driving you, that that are causing all of this, those are the things that you want to spend your prayers on, and you're not going to see your prayers answered if that is what you're truly praying for. If your prayer is just to get the things to then use to continue walking in this way of life. And I've encouraged you before, and I want to remind you again that when you pray, pay attention to what you're praying for and how it sounds. Don't get paranoid and so start kind of, I think sometimes we're afraid to pray in public. Most followers of Jesus I know the worst thing could be is for me to grab this microphone right now and walk up to you and say, hey, can you lead us in a word of prayer? Like, ah, don't ask me to do that. We're afraid to pray in public, but I think instead of being afraid to pray in public, we should be afraid that our prayers reveal something that dishonors God. And many times our prayers reflect what really is important to us and what's really happening in our hearts. And I just want to encourage you this week to go back and audit your prayer life. Go back and consider what is it you've been praying for, and if God gave you everything that you wanted, if God answered every prayer in your life in the last week, what would have happened? And that often reveals the driving passions and desires of our heart. James continues in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity is a, a word most of us don't use. It means hatred or conflict. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James, the the writer of this book, was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who had converted to Christianity from Judaism who were scattered across northern Eurasia. And in that area, he's speaking to them. And in this section, he uses three words that it would have immediately got their attention. He says, you adulterous people. Now, if you were a Jewish Christian, you would know the Old Testament, and you would know that the prophets in the Old Testament again and again called out the people of God for spiritual adultery. That's the language the prophets used when the people were not being devoted to God. And he would use, these prophets would use the analogy of marriage to say, hey, God is is your spouse, and you are cheating on him. 
by looking to these false gods of the people around you, looking to them to deliver you in a way that only God can deliver you. And so to these Jewish Christians, James says, you adulterous people, boom, has their attention. Then he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In essence, what he's saying is that when you begin to look to this world, to the things of this world and the people of this world, for what only God can give, you are on your way to adultery. That's where it begins. And all of us are vulnerable to this. So even if you're not married today or in a relationship today, you are capable, I am capable of spiritual adultery with God. And it happens when we look to anything or anyone for what only God can give. When anyone and anything takes the place in our life that only God can have. And he's saying these prides This passion within you, yes, it's leading to internal conflict, but what it could ultimately lead to is you betraying your commitment to God, you being unfaithful to him. And so right out of the gate here, James is warning them, hey, you're at war and the stakes are high, not just within you, but outside of you. And this is why I said in the beginning that following Jesus requires a wholehearted commitment, not half-hearted allegiance. When a couple stands in front of an altar and commits their life to one another, they're not saying, I do with my half heart and I do with my half heart. No, they're saying, I do with my whole heart and my whole life. And the expectation is that I'm committing all of myself to you for all of my life. The same thing is true when following Jesus. He is looking for a wholehearted commitment, not just a half-hearted allegiance. James continues in verse 6. After this harsh, harsh word, This challenge, he said, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The second warning for those of us who are in a spiritual war today is that the way to victory opens when God's grace enters a humble heart. If we want to win this spiritual battle that we're in, that way to victory, that path opens up like a crowd parting when God's grace enters a humbled heart. When I study scripture and prepare messages like this, often what I'm looking for is I'm looking for threads. I'm looking for threads that run from this text to other text, places where this theme or this statement is reflected in other places. And when you read scripture, I would encourage you to allow scripture to interpret scripture and don't just decide on your own what you think the Bible means. Look for places where you see a similar pattern. And this phrase that we see in James 4 verse 6 is a thread that runs through the entire Bible. In Proverbs 3 34, the proverb writer says, towards the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. 
In 1 Peter 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The same kind of sentiment, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, is reflected in Psalm 138, in Proverbs 29, and in the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, and then in Luke 152. Again and again and again, in all of these places, we see this theme over and over again, that God gives grace to the humble, but God is opposed to the proud. And so to his audience, James says, look, you are the proud. And when you stand in your pride, God is opposed to you, but God gives more grace and he gives more grace to those who are humbled. So in the text, James gives this image. He says, cleanse your hands, which has great meaning to us in 2020. All of us have thought more about how we're washing our hands than ever before. And if you're like me, when you go in the bathroom, you kind of judge the other person at the sink next to you about how they're judging their, you know, they're washing their hands. Uh, I didn't hear the whole song. You need to keep singing. You know, you missed your fingernails. Um, he gives this image of cleansing their hands and purifying their hearts. He isn't just saying, hey, change your external behavior. He's saying, allow God to change your heart. If, if your internal actions, your internal desires and passions are leading to this external conflict, then both of them need change. And sadly, in the church, we often get caught up in just the hands cleansing, you know. We often get caught up in the external things that people can see, and we forget that real true change doesn't happen until it touches us on the inside. Again, following Jesus requires a wholehearted commitment. It isn't just your hands, it's your hands and your heart. And I love what James does here in the middle of this section. He says, but he gives more grace. Because I don't know about you, but as I've been reading through James, I've not enjoyed my time. I've not enjoyed my time because James and the Holy Spirit are all up in my business this summer. It's one thing for me to stand and tell you something on Sunday, but what often happens is on Tuesday, James and the Holy Spirit end up in my business, and I spend the week wrestling through that so I can come and stand and talk to you. Last Sunday, I was preaching, and I came under such conviction that while I was talking, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to have a conversation with my wife before I went to bed, because I just couldn't stand this Sunday and not be a hypocrite if I didn't do that. And I felt good. Okay, I did that on Sunday. Okay, well, not even 48 hours later, Tuesday morning, I'm sitting at a coffee shop with my mask on, working on my message, and James and the Holy Spirit tag team me again like it's WWE, and again I'm on the mat. And again, I'm having to stand before somebody this week and confess something. And yet what James says is that there is grace for that. And I think the problem is, is that most of us treat grace like this little water bottle right here. We treat grace like this water bottle on a long hike. If you went on a hike for four or five miles today and this was all the water that you took, you would take the most ginger, thoughtful, small sips. And I think many of us treat grace like this. We try to do the best we can to use as little as possible. We try to not need grace. I try to be honest, to not need grace. I would love to not need grace. But here's the problem. I'm a broken sinner. 
And this is not the way that God relates to you and me. This is the way that God relates to you and me. I thought about bringing like a hose, but then, you know, you'd be afraid I was going to spray you or something. But there's, there's grace for that. And so after challenging us about the pride in our hearts and saying God is opposed to the proud, what does James say? But God gives grace to the humble. And there is more grace. And so the challenge of a book like James is, yes, God is going to challenge you. He's going to convict you. He's going to speak to you. He's going to confront you. But the path to victory opens when you humble your heart and God's grace comes in. And often what that means is facing your sin. And this is where James says something really powerful here. In verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I mean, that's kind of dark, Scott. But that's what happens when you finally face the brokenness of your sin. Question for you. When's the last time you were wrecked by your own sin? I don't mean you were judgmental of somebody else's sin. I don't mean you were heartbroken over somebody else's sin. When's the last time you were wrecked for what you saw in the mirror? and what you saw in your own heart. One of the last times I would say I was wrecked by my sin was right around the turn of this year, in December and January. I've said before that I believe that Jesus saves us and redeems us and transforms us, but I believe that counseling can also help in the process that Jesus is doing in our hearts. And so I've been in counseling for two years as an individual and then with my wife for a portion of that time. And we were in a counseling session. I can't remember if it was in late, Janu- late December or early January. But my wife shared two things with me in that counseling session that just completely wrecked me, if I'm honest. There were things that I didn't even realize that I had done. But as I looked across the room at her, it was undeniable what I had done, had done to her. And I was a mess for weeks. It took me three individual counseling sessions to work back to group because I was processing through all of those things. And as somebody who likes to get by with just a little bit of grace, I needed a whole lot more than this. And, uh, I'll tell you more in a little bit about how that session ended. But I just wanted to challenge you with this, that if you can't remember the last time you were wrecked by your own sin, my fear is is that you're going to stand in judgment of somebody else's sin. See, real change happens when I'm more grieved for my sin than I'm concerned about yours. You want to know when change happens? It means... I'm facing my sin and it's grieving me. And like James says, I'm mourning and I'm weeping. And when I'm dealing with that, I don't have the time and space to look at you and spend my time standing in judgment over your sin. Because God's dealing with me over my own. Let me be really clear. God invites us to humble ourselves. He doesn't invite us to condemn ourselves. And there's a big difference. See, when we humble ourselves, God gives us grace, and we stand in God's grace. We don't stand in condemnation. And I had to learn that through that experience because I wanted to condemn myself for what I realized were blind spots in me. 
But what I discovered is that when God truly humbles you, that's the place where you begin to experience grace, not condemnation. Okay, we got one more section to go. John 4, sorry, James 4, 11, and 12. He says this to conclude, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Third warning for those of us in a spiritual battle, James says, our words reveal our location. Our words reveal our location. Our words reveal where we are standing. Now, many of us are familiar with the role of a judge, whether it's a real judge or a TV judge. And in essence, the role of a judge is twofold. A judge has been uh, deputized, empowered to pass judgment on certain types of cases in a certain context. That's the first thing. The second thing is that a judge has been given access to all of the information they need to accurately judge the case. But that's what a judge is. And here's the problem. Neither one of those are true about us. God has not put us in the position and charged us with judging other people. And two, we don't have all the information that we need to effectively judge other people. And so what James is saying is he says you can either be following the law or following the law, if you forget the end, or judge the law, but you cannot do both. And I brought my little stool here to show you that, that what happens when you stand in, in judgment of somebody else is that judging you lifts you above them. And you pass judgment down upon them. And when you stand in judgment, your words reveal your location, that you have raised yourself up, not just above the other person, but James would say you've raised yourself up above the law of God. <laughs> so when you're standing in judgment, you're standing, I'm standing in God's place. Not a place I want to be. Not a place you want to be. And that's why I just say, man, it's, it's kind of crazy, huh? It's kind of crazy. That's what happens. But that's what happens when we move into a judgmental posture. And that's why James warns us, like he did in James 3, that Pastor Josh taught on, about the power of our words. And he says, hey, you can either stand above the law and judge other people, or you can stand under the law of God and you can follow it yourself. And when I realized that, I was reminded of one of my favorite cartoons growing up, Charlie Brown. There's that infamous Charlie Brown, that Peanuts line, where, where he says, I'm, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. And that's, that's the key, isn't it? Because God doesn't just want us to externally do these things. He wants it to line up with our internal thing, too. That's the difference between obedience and submission. See, when I'm obeying you, I can be doing all these things externally, but internally not be submitting. I can be gritting my teeth, and right now behind my mask, you cannot see what my face looks like while I give you a face, you know? But when I'm submitted internally, lines up with externally. 
And there's a big difference. God doesn't just want us to obey. He wants us to submit, lining up the external and the internal, because following Jesus requires wholehearted commitment. He isn't just looking for the half that is the external. He's looking for the whole thing. Now, let me give you some next steps to put some of these things into practical action this week. Here's number one. I want to invite you to pray a dangerous prayer. I'll just warn you in advance. This is a dangerous prayer. Ask God to help you become more grieved for your sin than you are concerned with someone else's. You go, Scott, why on earth would I want to pray that prayer? Because that's where real change begins. This is what Paul says. The guy who's responsible for, through the Holy Spirit, writing more of the Bible than anybody else, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And it's from that place of humility that he's still impacting the world. Paul was more grieved over his sin than he was anyone else's. And real change happens when we're more grieved for our sin than we're concerned about others. That's the dangerous prayer, the first one. Number two, invite a friend to hold you accountable for backbiting and judging words. Now notice the last little section, especially on social media. I don't think social media is what's wrong with our world. I think it's the same thing that's been wrong since the garden. I just think social media makes it really easy for us to say things and do things before our filters can stop us from saying and doing things. And it gives us a sense of anonymity. I get emails from, th- from people who would say things to me over email who would never say those things to my face because it feels more anonymous. And if you want to live out the words of James chapter 4, I just want to invite you to say, hey, what would it mean for you to pick a friend and say, hey, when you see my stuff on social media, would you hold me accountable that I would not do what James talks about, which is backbiting and judging words? Even as a family, if you're watching this from home as a family, what if you adopted this mindset? Do you see something? Say something. As a family, you're going to hold each other accountable for your words. Parents, your kids are not just listening when you're teaching them. They're always listening. And they're picking up things even when you think they're not listening. So invite somebody to hold you accountable. And then number three, embrace God's generous grace. told you I'd finish that story of counseling later on in the message What changed me this year was not just being wrecked by my own sin. It was sitting across from the person that I saw the impact of my unknowing hurtful actions say, Scott, I know you're processing this fresh. I've been working through this for months and years, and I've already forgiven you. I don't see you through the lens of that anymore. And I know that's all you can see when you look at me. But you need to know that I've already given you grace. I've already forgiven you. You're just going to have to decide to accept it for yourself. And the longer I'm a pastor, the more I meet people who have no problem believing that God can forgive them, 
who hear the words of people around them forgive them, they just have a hard time forgiving themselves. They have a hard time embracing grace as a, not just a mental reality, but a personal experience. And so I just want to encourage you, there's grace for that. There's more grace. And that's why today's scripture memory is from James 4, 6. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. And so if if God is in the process of using James 4 in your life, like he's using it in my life, and he's revealing your brokenness, and he's humbling you, then guess what? There is grace for that too. And as we receive God's grace, he does things in us that weren't possible before. I want to experience that myself, and I want that for you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the book of James. It's been a tough year. It's been a tough summer. And honestly, transparently, Jesus, when when you work through your scripture in my life and you reveal things that need to change, when when your scripture cuts through me like a double-edged sword right down to the marrow, it is not always fun in the moment. But you follow that cutting with grace. You follow that revealing with grace. And I have to believe that in this room and online and the lives of the people who are listening to my words right now, that they've experienced that very thing, if not today, recently. And we pray that we would not be in a position that is above you or opposed to you, Jesus. We want to be in the place that is in humility under you. So Jesus, if there's some people listening right now who who need to confess some sin today, I pray they would have the courage to do that. To you and maybe to somebody else. For the person who's listening today who's realizing that they have been following you half-heartedly, focused just on their external actions, but withholding their heart duplicitly or hypocritically, living one way, speaking another, speaking one way, living another, I pray that you'd give them the grace to face that and humble themselves. And for the person who's watching today, Jesus, who's recognizing for the very first time that that word describes them, sinner. I pray that they would recognize that there is grace for them too. I pray that they would know that they are just a moment away from being reconciled to you if they'll open their heart to you and submit themselves to you. If that's you, you could simply pray, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. I humble myself today. Save me. Not every relationship will be fixed in a moment. Not every pattern will be changed in a moment. But in a moment, God, we can be made right with you. We humble ourselves. We pray.
pray that we would experience that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.